This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Wall Street Coach Podcast with me and Lucas Peterson. Uh, I'm very excited today because Jack Schwager is with us. I am so excited to have an opportunity to let you hear his incredible wisdom. Uh, a little bit about Jack. Uh, if you don't know who he is and you're a trader, then I want to know what rock you've been living under because <laughs> most traders actually know Jack Schwager as the most recognizable name, most of all because of his tremendous book called Market Wizards. And that was the first of many books that I read of Jack. Uh, another, he has so many books and I'll, I'll mention them all, but the other book I really want to strongly recommend out of the gate to traders is Market Sense and Nonsense. I think that one also is tremendous, Jack. And your most recent book, uh, The New Market Wizards. But a little bit about Jack first. He is a recognized industry expert in futures and hedge funds and the author, of course, of all of these books and many more. Uh, he is one of the founders of Fund Cedar, a platform designed to find undiscovered trading talent worldwide and connect unknown successful traders with sources of investment capital. Previously, Jack was a partner in Fortune Group, uh, a London-based hedge fund advisory firm, and his prior experience also includes 22 years as the director of futures research for some of Wall Street's leading firms, most recently Prudential Securities. Welcome, Jack, to my podcast. It's hey. so good to have you here. Uh, thanks, Ken. Nice to speak to you again. Just one correction. The most recent book was Unknown Market Visits. Oh, it was Unknown Market yeah, Wizards. Yeah. My mistake. New Market I'm Wizards so was the second of the Wizards. That's books. right. It yeah. was. I'm so sorry I mixed those right. up, but I've read them all. Yeah. <laughs> but right. I, I really loved Unknown Market Wizards because I felt it really spoke. It just felt very timely. T tell us what prompted you to even write that. Uh, well, I a uh, couple of things. Uh, one is one is a relation is is. Fundseater idea, which uh, which I'm involved with, which is basically a platform for traders, and and our goal is basically, when I say platform, it's it's a platform that traders can use to analyze their performance, and get you know various graphs, uh, even do technical analysis on their on their equity curve and stuff like that, and all sorts of performance stats. Our our goal is not to monetize that. That's really just the uh, allures to get traders on the platform and our yeah. premise was that there's lots of traders out there that are really superior very, you know to, to most traders but nobody knows who they are nobody knows where they are they're just in their office trading and doing well you know uh, so our goal is to find these traders and the monetization comes from a sister company uh, which is fund Cedar investments uh, which is now just getting started in operate, I mean, it's been around structurally, but the idea was to first get a database of traders. And Fundseeder Investments would use the database of uh, the Fundseeder Technology, which is a plat trader platform, as a source to create investor product. And uh, while we didn't, didn't necessarily know what the, what the first direction was going to be, whether it was going to be linking tra traders with institutional investors or whatever it, the way we're going now is our first product will be a multi-trader fund and wow. uh and you know other things may come you know beyond that too so yeah. uh because that fo focus of looking for kind of really good traders who nobody knows that that sort of naturally led to this idea of unknown unknown market wizards plus the last the last market wizard book I did, which was uh, Hedge Fund Market Wizards, right. um, that book was done uh, uh, it was about 2012, actually just before I did the Market Sense and Nonsense. And oh. in that particular case, uh, the focus, like the title says, was just on hedge funds. So this was about as far away you can get from that concept instead of looking at managers with large operations. Uh, I was looking for kind of the solo trader, 
So it was a combination of those things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when Now that you have this database, are, are there commonalities that you do see uh, among all of these unknown traders? Well, you know, not a, there are lots of commonalities. Not all of them apply, certainly, to all traders. The one commonality that applies to almost all traders is, uh, is not going to be a surprise is risk management. So I think as you go through the chapters, I, this book has well in almost every chapter, every Marco Wizard book, you will see that, that, you know, that the risk management theme comes up very strongly. And I think one thing that the, separates really professional traders or successful traders from those who are not is an understanding that first and foremost, trading is about not losing too much and staying in a game. And that, that's or just sort of the other phrases really for what risk management is supposed to do. And then secondarily about the approach you're using. Now you need both. Uh, you can't succeed without some sort of edge and methodology, but there's an understanding that if you don't have a solid risk management plan, uh, even with a good methodology, uh, you're, you're vulnerable to blowing up at some point, being, being knocked out of the game. Uh, so, um, you know, you, you can't bet if you lose your chips and, you know, that type of thing. So uh, uh, so that's one major commonality. Uh, I think particularly in this book, but it comes up again and again, but you'll, you'll see these traders have tremendous self-discipline in many ways, uh, both the intensity of self-focus, uh, the amount of research they do, the amount of analysis they do in their own trading, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the discipline comes in, of course, in the risk management side, too. So uh, uh, a couple of these traders are trading very, very large on high-confidence trade, trades. And the only way they can get away with that without blowing up is they really have super strong risk management and indeed will get out immediately if it's not reacting. The market isn't reacting exactly as they expect. If they hesitate, and there's an example in the book where one of these traders who trades this way um, – sort of uh, put on a trade and it went really suddenly against him and he froze and he was thinking, I can't get out. I can't take this now. And he waited a little bit and the market bounced back and he ended up with not that much of a loss. But this, 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 this episode came up in answering the question, what was the worst mistake you ever made? Because even though the decision to, to wait in that case turned out to be helpful and turned a large loss into a, a small loss, he recognized, and by the way, after, after it bounced back and he got out, it didn't bounce back all the way, then it completely cratered. And had he not gotten out at that little bounce, yes. he, he would have really taken a devastating loss. So he, he recognized that he was just super lucky. Yeah. And, and that, that initial freezing and not being able to take that initial loss was a huge mistake and sort of swore to himself that would never happen. And that was like the one episode where, you know, where he like had that lapse of discipline, but you have to, it's almost a hundred percent thing if you're trading that way. You can't, you can't have it, you can't mess up one time. You know, you have, you always have to be totally rigid. Uh, one of the traders in the book is, uh, I used to say ex-Marine, I was corrected by someone that said there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Uh, uh, so, so uh, but anyway, so his Marine background, I think, was, well, he, he, he attributes it not only to success in trading, but in saving him from, from kind of a, 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 a being a failure in life in general, the turning it all around. Wow. And, uh, but I think the discipline he got through the Marines sort of is instrumental also in, in his trading. Yeah. What, what is your, this just such great story, that particular story. I, I have no doubt every trader listening to us will feel their, you know, stomach turned with that story and they can imagine it because it's already probably happened to them. Hopefully not with as much of a devastating loss, but that's probably the case for some. What do you think is the biggest misnomer for let's say the traders who might be successful after this past year and a half, two years, but what perhaps might they not have seen or experienced yet that you would like to say, 
keep an eye out for this? Well, first of all, in general, particularly for newer traders without a lot of experience, uh, you know, we'll say trading only a year, a couple of years or whatever. Um, and we've had a market environment, well, certainly since the bottom in, in March last year for the last year and a half, uh, where the market is just kind of, well, recently it's gone a little more sideways, but we basically had a unidirectional market and uh, very easy for traders to, uh, and, and buying the dip has always been the right thing and stuff like that. So one thing I, I, one thing in general, not just this environment, but let me take the, the bigger picture first, is I think traders need to be careful about getting complacent and thinking they got it, you know, because, you know, my experience, my personal experience, and I think a lot of traders I interviewed is, is, you know, once you, when you think you just, you just, you know, now you got it, you know, you that's when, that's when the markets, the market will always surprise you and things are always changing and change, the market changing is a theme that comes up, you know, quite a bit in this book, I would say. Uh, so, so one thing is just in general, beware of getting that feeling that, oh, I got it, you know, I got it nailed because the market will, just a matter of when, uh, yeah. but it will surprise you. And my experience, and I think the experience of a lot of traders is your worst periods come after your best performance. There's a couple of reasons for that, but we can go into that on a tangent at some point if you want. Uh, now, particularly in the last year and a half, the, the danger is if traders have come in just during that period, they've experienced one type of market and sort of uh, maybe totally unprepared if the market changes. And then there's the other thing sort of like, which has become a, a, a thing, so to speak, in this last year, and it's kind of a new thing, is this, this, this Reddit trading, right? Yeah. Where, where it's kind of like a, enough of a replay of the greater fool theory, you know? Sort of people are recommending you buy, you buy, and and you your hope is that you'll 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 sell it to somebody else who comes in even higher. I mean that's what what you're doing. But but buying things, buying stocks really for no other reason than as a group buying it, and and you know you're going to stick it to the man or whatever. And I think that's just like a that's kind of a losing mentality. I mean it's that it's a mentality that can't work in a long run. And my feeling from the very beginning was, hey yeah yeah. Some of these people make make money, particularly the ones who are early, and mm -hmm. and uh, so the, the ones you take a stock like GME, where uh, you have people early kind of analyzing, the, you know, the shorts are maybe vulnerable to a squeeze, and sort of they take a position, and then they convince enough people, sure they're going to end up okay. They're probably getting out, you know, on the rally, but then these people come in and buying the stock at, you know, four hundred or something like that. I mean, those are the people who, you know, end up, who end up holding the bag. So um, I think a lot of, some of those things that are, that are current um, and that only recent traders are, are particularly experiencing or using are not, are not things that are going to turn out well, I think, for the majority of, 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 of those participants. Yeah. Yeah. The, the traders that are sophisticated that have been in the game, let's say at least, I, I want to say seven years or 10 years, do you think that they have, do you think it's required for them to go that length of time that they have to be at their desk every day, five days a week? Or do you see that the ones who can go for a really long time manage it in another way just around the over being in front of your computer screen all the time well you know first of all almost nobody is going to be good all the time every you know, every trader is going to have periods where they're where they're just not doing well or their methodology is a little bit out of sync and and they talk about that and and uh, the solution is typically just to stop trading you know for some some you know could be just for the day could be just a matter of okay, this is just not working, it's a bad day, I'm closing out everything, I'll come back tomorrow, or maybe I'll come back next week, whatever. I mean, that depends on the trade, it depends on the methodology. So, so nobody's going to be good all the time, obviously. But um, the 10-year thing, and I may, maybe I mentioned, I, maybe, I don't know if I mentioned it explicitly in the book, or uh, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, I don't remember, but I certainly, it's something I do, when I'm looking for people to include in a market wizard book, typically I'm looking for 
at least a decade-long performance, preferably longer. I mean, some of the people in this book have have a couple of decades or you know of trading experience uh, or more. And and the reason for that, in one exception, is one trader who maybe had I think had like an eight-year record only uh, at the time I did the interview. But I made an exception because that eight-year was like exceptional, and I kind of thought he would continue yes. to do well. And uh, so. But so that, I mean, a ten years is not rigid. It's ideally I'm looking for at least that. So yeah. it's really a matter of just kind of saying, okay, at least it's not a flash in a pan. And if you if you're going to take somebody who has a good two year record, I mean, it doesn't prove anything. They might just have been on the right side of the market for two years, and uh, you know, on a, if it's a bull market and they're long, you know, right. A rising tide lifts all boats doesn't mean they're a genius. It might just mean they took well, they took more leverage and more risk in a in a up market. It doesn't prove anything. So I'd like to see a certain minimum time to suggest that hey, you know, this person really has has some edge, is is superior, is is really top uh, sort of upper echelon, not just not just lucky. And that's that's one part. The other part is is a performance that is really exceptional and exceptional could fall into two categories. One is someone who just compounds a relatively small amount of money into a, into a, you know, really substantial, uh, substantial account. Uh, and it could be like the most, maybe the most extreme cases, not maybe the most extreme case in the book is a fellow by the name of Jeff Newman, who, started with a sub $5,000 account uh, like about 15 years before I did the interview. And um, by, when I interviewed him, he had kind of cumulatively made about 50 million out of that 5,000. And I haven't spoken to him for, for at least about three, four months or whatever, but the last time I spoke to him, he had quadrupled that. So you know, that's, that's, I mean, so that type of thing is, is extraordinary. I mean, he's another trader, Chris Camillo, uh, started with 80,000 uh, and, you know, it's over 20 million. So, I mean, those, so that type of thing. And then you have traders who just have this extraordinary, they may not, they, they may not compound because they're pulling money out of their accounts. Maybe they're trading, they're trading in a way which, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to just compounding, compounding, but they keep it, they, they may want to just keep trading a million, two million, whatever it is, and pulling money out and investing it in real estate or whatever, whatever they do. With it. Yeah. Uh, but their return risk is just extraordinary. You know, sort of yeah. like uh, I don't use the sharp ratio, uh, and a sharp ratio is not a good measure because for the, for the type of traders I look for, because their returns are very as, asymmetric. So their gains are much larger than their losses, and the sharp ratio penalizes upside volatility. But in, uh, in return risk terms, um, they've, they've got numbers that are like 10 times or 15 times the, le- you know, the level of what would be considered a good return risk, wow. you know, sort of like a, a Sortino ratio. Uh, yeah. A lot of Sortino ratios that are just, like I say, 10 times as high as, as what would be considered a really good Sortino ratio. It's amazing. Amazing. Did you go to say something, Lucas? Uh, I just have a question on, I mean, you get to talk to the the best of the best of traders, right? Um, and I wonder, in your opinion, do you think, do you think anyone, I mean, like the, the turtle traders kind of prove this, but do you think that anyone can be a good trader um, on their own without um, mm. a lot of uh, maybe uh, guidance along the way? Yeah, well, first of all, Let's take the second part of that question first, the guidance. Um, I, ultimately, traders have to figure it out on their own. They have to come up with their own methodology. I, I don't remember interviewing anybody who learned a methodology from somebody and then continued it on, on, on their own, and that's, how, that's what made them super successful. Now, mm-hmm. they, they may have learned things from other traders, uh, but they still ended up with their own methodology. So I think the idea that you have to find somebody to teach you the, the way to trade is a misconception. You, you can learn good thing. You, you can learn good traits and certain ideas from traders who are successful, but ultimately you can only pull out those things that will work for you. 
So it still has to be compatible to your, to your own approach. And, and you ultimately do have to develop your, your own approach. As far as can anybody be you know, a successful trainer, um, I think that kind of being net successful or net profitable is an achievable goal probably for most people. But, but ultimately, you know, having sort of extraordinary performance, that I think sort of is a combination of, uh, of doing all the right things. Uh, but there, I think there's some innate skill there. And it's sort of like, um, like anybody can learn. Yeah, I guess anybody, I, I don't play the violin, but I assume if you practice enough, anybody can learn to play the violin. But the amount of people who have innate talent, sufficient innate talent to be the lead soloist with a philharmonic orchestra, you, you're dealing with a very small number of people. And I, I think it's the same in any profession. You know, there's always, it's only going to be a certain small percentage that can excel by definition. Not everybody can be, not everybody can be exceptional, you know. Yes. It's average for yes. a reason, right? That, you know, half the people are below average, half the people are above average. Now, those, trade, those traders who do everything right can be in the above average section, but not everybody's going to be exceptional. Yeah, yeah. It's such a, it's such a great uh, point. And I'm almost curious, when you have traders uh, who approach you, new and sophisticated ones, uh, they, they're probably at times, I imagine asking you, you know, should I stay in the game? Should I try to see if I am the one who's exceptional? What, what, what's your advice to them? Like, what's the litmus test? Well, I couldn't, I, I couldn't answer a question like that because it's so dependent on the individual Yeah. and, uh, and what their approach is and everything else. So I, I, that's the type of question that I couldn't answer. Uh, uh, I mean, I suppose, and I don't do, you know, I, this is kind of your, your area where you do coaching and stuff like that, but I don't do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> unless you consider my books coaching and stuff like that. But, yeah. uh, so, but I don't physically sit down with traders and, and analyze what they're doing and, and figure out what they're doing wrong and that type of thing. But yeah. the question like the one you asked really require, requires, really knowing the trader, what they're doing, their psychology, a lot of things. So it's really trader dependent. There's no general answer that you could have for that type of question. Yeah. I'm curious if if traders are still finding uh, fun cedar, are you seeing any increase in women coming into trading? I haven't looked at it. I know, well, I know that I, I looked, you know, at the, um, when I look at like the, the top, you know, 40 or 50, usually, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's very heavily male dominated. And I just think it's, it's kind of, uh, that's not that there aren't women traders out there, not that there aren't successful women traders out there, but it's very lopsided in mm-hmm. terms of participants. So uh, I personally, I think that if you had the same amount of women drawn into trading as men, yeah. uh, you'd probably have more than 50% women because, you know, my feeling is they're, they have two advantages, I think, which are gender-based. This one, I think they're, they're probably more, they're, they're, they're less, this, 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 this idea of, of ego and, and, and being right and, and being rigid and all that, I think it's more of a probably a male, a male trait than it would be a female trait, and that's that's a negative trait for trading, and uh, and you know I, I think maybe you know I don't have the data for this, but I would suspect women are probably more intuitive than men are. I don't know. Uh, I mean, if I had to bet, if, it, if yeah. one could make one could do an experiment, I had to bet. I'd bet the women were more intuitive, and and being more intuitive is kind of good in, you know, in trading. So um, I think that, that yeah, there's no reason why women shouldn't be as good or better than men. It's just a matter that, hey, if you have 100, 100 males going to trade, you know, do, do trading as, a, as an in-depth for every woman, it's going to be lopsided just because you know, your populations are very, very different. Yes, yes. You know, uh, I'm glad you spoke to that. And I also want to say a couple of things here. First off, I 
was, I remember asking you, because when I was interviewing people for my book, trying to find more women was really a struggle. And when I first met you to interview you, uh, you know, you, you expressed the same frustration. You wanted to feature women and just, you know, weren't able to find those track records of longevity or a big enough pool. And I was so impressed that that was something you had even noticed. Uh, so I, I think, you know, just to hear you speak to that today, I, I just, you know, guess if any women are listening to us, please go find out if this is for you. It may not be, but gosh, what if it is? I, I do think there is a bit of an edge that women would have. Yeah, yeah, I am. And uh, I'd love to see, you know, and, you know, there's been no, nobody, I'm not aware of any studies that have been done on, on women traders versus men traders, but, but it's hard to find. I mean, the data, you know, yeah. it's hard to identify. It's hard to, hard to find women traders. And, yeah, for sure. I have a, a colleague who's actually uh, running a fund where she, you know, really wants to have women uh, traders. And, you know, she's been searching high and low. I've given her some women's names, yeah. but, she, you know, she really wants women with a track record and she's just shocked at how hard it is to find. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a few women like, you know, who who are, you know, who do come up well in, in front seated, but the ratio is just very lopsided. So yeah. as we're speaking, I, I can think of two, you know, two two women I can think of that, uh, that you know, that... Uh, you know, been doing quite well and that show up, uh, uh, you know, uh, that are in front seat or them aware of it. Uh, but, but it's really lopsided in yeah. you know, ratio yeah. of men to women. For sure. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about market sense and nonsense, just because oh, sure. it, that was just, I thought it was such, you know, one of the things I love about your writing, Jack, is you are always speaking in terms you don't you don't use a lot of as they call them three dollar words you 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 write in such a way that i think even people not in the finance world could understand what you're you it's this very i think it's a very hard thing to do to be a storyteller at, in a non-fiction setting and you do that really really well yeah, and in I appreciate market it because that's one of my major goals when i you know in writing it's, it's so, I think it's really hard to write in a way that's storytelling or write uh, simply. It's, it's, not as, it's not as easy as everybody thinks. I think it's easy to use these big words and complicated descriptions. But if you want people to understand what you're writing, yours just made, made me at the beginning when I first read Market Wizards, this was, I was probably on the fence about whether to write my book or not. And when I finished Market Wizards, it gave me a boost of confidence because you had written it in a way that I knew, wow, people outside of finance are going to understand this book. Maybe I could you know, take this leap and try to write my own. And a quick shout out to, to how gracious you are. When I reached out to you, I was a nervous wreck to reach out to you, by the way. You were like one of the first people I interviewed. And that's eight, nine years ago. Yeah. Because I thought you would say to me, uh, who, who the hell are you? And are, are you trying to copy my idea? But I was like, your idea of reaching out to multiple people, let's maybe, let me ask you that first. What sure. brought the idea for Market Wizards? I, from the start I, to fruition. I just, uh, you know, I was, I guess, in a business about 10 years or so. And I just, I don't remember where the idea first came from, but I just thought it would, you know, it'd be a neat thing to, so I wouldn't, a neat idea would be to go write a book where I go around and interview, you know, the kind of best traders in the country. And uh, both, as I, both would be fun to do. And, you know, I, I was kind of trading as a hobby, as a sideline. I mean, I had a job as a research director, but uh, and it sort of be a way to self-improve as well, you know, so and a combination of it'd be an excuse to pick their brains and it'd be a fun project. And, yeah. and so I just had the idea of Market Wizards and I had it for at least, I don't know, several years before I actually wrote the book because I was working at a full-time, you know, more than full, being a research director is kind of more than an eight-hour day by itself. But I had written that first book, A Complete Guide to the Futures Market, which was totally different, which I took a sabbatical on. And it's, a, it's an analytical book. It's almost 800 pages long. It, it was, you know, immense amount of work. And it, it was not the, it, it was not aimed at a broad audience. We're trading futures and wanted to learn 
you know, different analytical techniques and stuff like that. So, and I just was writing next, I thought I could do a better book than anything that was out there. So that was my goal and nothing more, but I didn't, but then I had the idea for market wizards and it was just the catalyst being some publisher approaching me to do more, more analytical books, uh, basically at a, at a lunch. And I kind of said, I have no interest in that, but this is, this is an idea I had. And they said, Oh, good, do that. And so that was a catalyst. And uh, since I wanted to do it, but I was kind of scared off because of the time commitment, but uh, you know, so that was, so that, that's how it came about. Yeah. Talk, and it ended talk. up being a, essentially ended up being a nights and weekends type of project. Yeah. Yeah. And were, was there surprises along the way as you began to interview? Name a few of the basic, just, just you can name them all, but just, Say some names for those who are yeah, I mean, sadly you know, not read that book yet. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, you know, first Market Wizards book, and I kind of uh, sort of trading legends, uh, uh, I guess, Michael Steinhardt, Bruce Kovner, uh, uh, um, trying to remember, you know, who's in the, between, let's say, between the first two books came in a couple of years, Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, 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 Richard Dennis, uh, I don't know if I've but there are a lot of people, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, yep. uh, Jim so, Rogers. So Jim you Rogers. Know, a lot of people who were kind of uh, famous as, as being sort of the best, among the best of uh, traders uh, of, of recent modern times. Yeah, yeah. Did you, was there, what was the most surprising thing at, at, that, at that journey as you started to do those interviews? What do you think surprised you in the journey of that book? Well, the most surprising thing was uh, quite a few of these traders, uh, as successful as they ultimately became, went through early experiences where they were either complete, you know, who either suffered really enough losses that, that kind of knocked them out of the game, at least temporarily, or came very close to being, uh, very close to just being knocked out of the game. Uh, I, I think of like you know, somebody like uh, Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, early in his career, I, he was uh, he was a basically on a cotton floor, and uh, that's that's was a specialty. And there's a story in in the original Marker Wizards book. I won't go through the whole thing, but essentially, he he had one trade where and it, I can go can give you the story if you want. Sure. You know, just okay. So, so the basic story is, uh, and be, I have to kind of give a little context here because sure, I used to be a cotton analyst, <laughs> so I kind of know that market. Yeah. Uh, and and so when he told the story, kind of, I kind of yeah. understood it well. Sure. But cotton for those people, look, you know, I'm, for ninety nine percent of the people who are not familiar with cotton, uh, there there there's an old crop and a new crop, and deliveries could only be made. Old crop deliveries can only be made on the last month of July until you go to a new crop. So July can be kind of tricky in terms of deliverable supplies and stuff like that. And so this was a situation where the market was in a, had been gone down and went into this sideways market for a number of months. And one day it pulls down on the cotton, uh, cotton exchange floor. Back in the old days when we had pits and, and we didn't have electronic trading, really yep. kind of ancient days. Uh, and uh, the market goes to a new low. Uh, goes goes to low, new low, and then suddenly rallies back in, in into the range. And Paul looks at it and thinks, "Ah, bear trap." Now, this bear trap is sort of an idea that still is relevant today, and that is the and not just the cotton any market. It's the and, it, and it, the the opposite, you know, is a the analogy on the upside is a is a bull trap. But on the downside, basically, what it means is you'll see a lot of times you'll get reversals. Is you the market will make new lows and then rally back, and what's happening is the new lows will wipe out. People tend to put their stops at new lows, and sometimes there's a very large accumulation of stops at new lows. So the markets will be drawn to that um, for a number of reasons. We'll wipe it out, leave a vacuum, you know, basically clear out, clear out the selling, and then there's a vacuum up and it goes. And not all the time, but it's kind of a pattern that. People who are familiar with with charts and and markets understand that that's something to look for. And, and actually, in that complete guide to the futures market, kind of one of the things I talk about is how those failed signals are probably 
better than than the classic interpretation of singles. So anyway, wow. so I totally understood what he was doing. So, but he, so he got enormously bullish, and he puts in an order which is really too large relative to the capital he's managing. So he he's he a buy whatever it is, five hundred con, whatever five hundred contracts, whatever the number was, and from across the pit, one of the brokers flies over everybody else and says sold. Now the broker that did that was the broker for the merchant who held almost all the deliverable supply. So he just found himself on the opposite side of, of, the, of, the, of the, the party that really has the inside information and, and the control. And everybody in the pit knew he was dead in the water. He knew he was dead in the water. Mm-hmm. Market went immediately limit down. It was several days of limit down before he was able to get out. By the time he gets out, even though he had a winning record, he's now down like, he lost like two thirds of his capital. And so he comes close to really quitting the business and kind of just decides at that point that why make, why make this a, a thing of pain, you know? And that's, he got burned so badly that, that, that his risk management thereafter was just burned into his soul. Yes. But as an example, I mean, he became a legend, but he came, he came inches away from just giving up uh, for good reason. Stanley Druckenmiller, you know, another famous trader investor, ran his, I mean, he ran his Soros funds for quite a number of years when Soros was off in Eastern Europe. People don't know that, but he was the one who was really managing that that quantum fund. But he also ran his own fund for like 30 years and had something close to a 30% average return over that period. You know, again, just just everybody acknowledges he's just one of the great, all-time greats. but early on, he was capital squeezed. He started a fund. This fund he started, he didn't have enough money. He was making money because he, had, he was advising a client. That client had some something, you know, uh, unrelated to, to his, his trading, but had a loss elsewhere. And they, whatever, they had to pull, they had to cancel his, his consulting arrangement. And that was most of his income. And his overhead on the fund was, was, was just larger than, he didn't have enough, you know, that much money on the management. It was largely in control. So he basically takes almost all his money, and he thought that this is back in the early 80s, and he kind of felt very strong that and this is when, for people who don't know, this is when we had, like, bonds go to 13%, 14%. We had T-bills hit, a, like, a short-term high of 20%. And Eurodollars is just like another kind of a similar to T-bills. So he, he just thought that, we were there peaking rates, and he wanted to be bullish the uh, the interest rate markets. So he takes a large position going long euro dollars, and basically he just runs out of you know he has to stop the position out, and he got stopped out literally. I don't know, just just points away from a, the, the, a low you know a, a low in, in, in interest rate instruments or high in interest rates. That not only have we never seen, you know, we've gone the whole you know, direction for 30 years and plus 35 years the other way, but we probably won't see it for 100 years. You know, who knows? And so, and so he has a trade which is really a sensible, you know, a great trade, but because he doesn't have enough capital, he almost like goes out of business. And uh, yeah. so there are a lot of, that's interesting. That was a surprise. A surprise with how many people almost never, it never came to be, and, and yeah. just a small, a small change in fate, and we never would have known who they were. And the fact that they didn't give up—that is just yeah. a testament to their perseverance. Well, that's part of the success story, you know. That's yeah. uh, uh, you know something like Michael Marks in the first cha- first chapter of *Market Wizards*, where you know he failed repeatedly and wiped out his own account, even even lost his mother's money, and his mother was like lower middle class, you know. So it. But what they they just had this this sort of confidence that they they could succeed and yeah. and uh, and I, I think that is one of the elements is this this extreme self confidence and drive is one of the elements that that is responsible for the ultimate success. Yeah, yeah. Did you? I know you know your focus is primarily on that technical aspect. But do you, looking at it from the perspective of 
I'm always fascinated around the emotional intelligence. Do you feel that you did notice that, even if you weren't digging deep for it, but do you feel that sense of their ability to stand neutral under fire is superior than the average person's? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's an element is, is this, this ability to, to not, not let your emotions influence, influence trading. Uh, there's one exception in this book, but by and large, that's, that's true. Almost at all these traders, uh, actually, Paul, Paul Tudor Jones in our interview, he's talking about one of his sort of his mentor or somebody he looked up to. Uh, it was a cotton trader, by, I think Eli Tullis. Uh, but he says one of the things he admired, he, he said he could be in his office and he knew he had just taken, and he had guests or whatever, he knew he, he had just taken a really large loss and you could never tell. You know, you didn't know. And wow. he admired that. And I think that's, that's you know, that's what, that's what good traders, um, you know, I, I can think of traders where I've gone in and like, uh, you just, they just, you, you can't tell if they have a really good day or really bad day. Uh, and, and again, you know, one case, uh, uh, I interviewed a trader and I, I knew he had had a really good day, uh, but you, but he was just kind of like, you wouldn't know. He was just like, it, it was like, you know, nothing. And I'm sure if I went there, on the day we had a really bad day, it would have been the same thing. So yeah. it's it, it, the separation of emotion from trading. You know, uh, we uh, yeah, there's a there's a Hollywood image of trading, which mm -hmm. is this high testosterone emotional thing, and and yeah. it's you know that's because it makes good visuals. Yeah. And real trading, real trading would be like an Andy Warhol movie. It would be. <laughs> Be like, you know, like, and I say to people who don't know, and not that I've ever seen it, but I know that I think Wall did an eight hour movie of just the, the front of the Empire State Building, you know. Yeah, exactly. so, so it's that's what real training is like. It's sort of yes. the most boring thing you've ever seen yeah. if somebody made a, a movie about real training. And that's why these, well, all these poor traders don't ever get to see that. And they probably in the beginning feel like, what am I doing wrong? Because I don't have, you know, all the fancy bells and whistles going off it's it's i'm sure that uh what's the word for it you know there there's this consistency that's required of you yeah. and consistency look not everybody's built for that not everybody's built for consistent discipline habits managing risk and that's you know to the new traders listening, just ask yourself, do you see consistency, ability to be disciplined in your personal life? If you don't, how do you think you're going to be able to carry it over here? Yeah. Yeah. Is that something you saw in, in the other traders as uh, in a lot of the traders, I guess I should say is their, their lives in general, are they consistent and disciplined in their lives too? Or did they kind of, or were they able to compartmentalize trading? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't answer that question because I don't know them well enough. You know, typically, okay. typically the, you know, the interview is during the course of the day, occasionally it might roll over to the second day, but I don't really, it's not like I spend you know, a couple of weeks with them and get a feel for right. how they live their life. I, I don't see that part of it. Well, maybe that's the next market wizard. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Two weeks with each trader. <laughs> <laughs> and see what their secret sauce is in between their trading. What do you feel, Jack, uh, you've learned for yourself that's perhaps uh, different just in, just in how you trade uh, after interviewing these incredible people and or just living through the market that we've had in this last year too? Well, you know, for me, basically, uh, I mean, a certain, the big thing, of course, the big, big thing was, was when I started trading, I didn't understand risk management. I mean, I didn't understand that that was really the key. And through doing the interviews, I think I reinforced it. Uh, there's also, uh, a concept that came up in, in a, you know, a number of interviews, but the first interview where it came up was Bruce Kovner, who uh, was talking about, he was starting to trade much larger and, and basically talked about risk. He said, the way I manage is I, I, I always decide where I'm going to get out before I get in. 
And that one sentence kind of summarizes what what is for me kind of a maybe the, the, the single best description of when I trade what I do is like I'll always enter a stop. And I so I, I follow that. I, I rigorously follow that. I, I always enter a stop when I enter the order, so I kind of define what I could lose. And for me, that's very important because not only for risk management, but it takes the emotion out of it. I don't have to kind of uh, agonize. Do I stay with it? Do I get it? Go, you know, should I give it more room? I make the decision in the beginning. So that's, that's kind of the most important single line for me that I've ever had in any of the interviews. And it does, it is integral to the way I, I trade. So there's that big influence. And then there are traders who mention things which, uh, which I actually end up thinking about and ends up influencing. So like Marty Schwartz uh, said at one point, if you're ever really worried about a position and the market lets you off the hook easily, don't get out. And, uh, and I can remember, you know, some years ago, you know, this was a number of years ago, but at the time I was kind of, I had, uh, I might trade with the trend or against the trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm kind of uh, not one or the other. Uh, but if I'm trading against the trend, uh, like the idea is I'll, I'll put a position on in a zone where I think the market will fail and I'll have to stop somewhere beyond it. So in this particular case, uh, I, was, I was kind of anticipating we'll get a relative peak in equities and I'd pick that area to sell. I was about 80% positioned. And one day, Friday, we get an unemployment report and the report couldn't have been more negative for the stock market. And uh, the market sells off, and I think, oh great, you know, I, I, I you know, I just kind of thought, oh, this is, this trade's going to work out really well because it's just I just positioned short, and uh, then by the end of the day it rallies and it ends up up for the day, and it was a Friday, so I kind of think I'm dead in the water. But on the other hand, I kind of remember what Marty said, and uh, some, so Sunday evening comes, and the market, uh, the market, yeah, I was expecting you probably gap higher. The market opens up lower and it doesn't trade on and it doesn't trade higher. And I kind of knew, yeah, I remember my line. I said, yeah, you know, so I shouldn't get out. And I didn't. But, you know, during the day, I mean, I don't want to attempt the face. I maybe got out of 10 or 15% of the position, but I, but I held most of it. And, uh, and the trade worked out fine. But, so, but had I not interviewed Schwartz and had that thought in mind, I would say, oh, thank God letting me out, you know. Yeah, I would have covered the position. Yes. But it's particularly that and there was another case where uh, uh, where a trader talked about the correlation of markets. Uh, and the point was that what's important about correlation of markets is not when markets are correlating. What's important is when markets that correlate stop correlating. And wow. uh, so I had that thought in mind. There was a point uh, uh a couple of years ago, or a year and a half, I can't remember exactly when, but when gold had made an initial peak and then went down and then rallied back to the same high. And during that whole course, gold gold, and interest rates are very, very correlated in inverse sense. Uh, you know, so interest rates going up, gold goes down. Or in other words, when T-notes are going up, gold is going up. They're both. And, and it just like the markets, they were completely in tandem. Then we had the period where gold made a high, and T-notes had a, just a really large, large up move. Gold went down and back up to the old high. And so it was back where it was. At the meantime, rates had come down a lot. So I was kind of thinking of this, this, uh, of this, this, you know, this, this observation. And so, so it happened, you know, partially luck, but it was really because I was thinking of that. And I, I basically bought puts what ended up being kind of the high day or next to the high day. And it was not because I was particularly brilliant. It was just, I think, well, yeah, this is a perfect example of a breakdown of correlation. The market's yes. back to an old high. You know, yes. probably the uh, probably buying puts is an asymmetric trade at this point. But again, I wouldn't have thought of that trade had it yes. not been the interview. So there's, yes. you know, so I, like anybody hopefully reading the books, will get yeah. certain ideas that end up being useful in their own trading. Yeah, jewels. They're, they're jewels on the path these beautiful jewels that just, and even the way they embedded themselves into you, that you just were able to pull them up in that moment where you were like, wait a minute, this was spoken to. And that you have that in your file cabinet in your head is pretty magical. Well, I kind of remember, because basically I'm distilling the best of what I get from these traders. And I sort of 
things like that I, I'll remember because they're, they're very specific. And also they're not, the two examples I gave you are kind of, you know, not the typical, everybody knows risk management and all that, although hopefully I, you know, through the stories in the book, that thing comes across a little more memorably. But things like if you mark, if you, you know, if you're panicked about a position, the market lets you off the hook easily, that's not the type of advice you get anywhere else. So it sticks in your mind because some of these things are unusual or the idea that, that what's important about correlation is not the correlation, but the breakdown of the correlation. Again, it's not the typical thing that you hear or know. Yeah. So yeah. it sticks in your mind. Yeah, for sure. And and there's so and there's so I love the fact that each of them it, it speaks probably specifically to their strengths and to their pattern that which they're paying such close attention to. And because it, they're so varied, you're you're getting these facets of perspective that are all so unique. Yeah, I mean they they generally speaking, almost every trade uses a different methodology, so you do get a range of uh, ideas. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Any anything else that I didn't ask you that I should have, Jack, for those traders? <laughs> yeah. You're like, Kim, you missed the most important question. Nothing like that comes no, to mind. I, you know, when I do an interview, basically, I don't, I don't have any pre preconceived ideas that I want to talk about. It's just whatever comes up. Okay, anything yeah. that I've forgotten, Lucas? You think? Uh, I just want to ask, Jack, um, what is what is your passion? Because you have all these different. Mm-hmm. Uh, careers basically <laughs> it seems like yeah. uh, what is what is what are you most passionate about uh, well career wise uh, career wise like you said I've done a number of different things but the the author part or, or writing a book that kind of the end I, I kind of, at the final draft I read I say yeah that's okay that's pretty good <laughs> I feel happy about it, and particularly if uh, it resonates with a lot of people so that's that, that sense of satisfaction is probably better than anything else you know, I've done career-wise. Uh, so I would say that's, that's first and foremost. Uh, just outside of that, you know, just from a living standpoint, I guess, being physically active has kind of been the most important. You know, that's always been the primary thing. Uh, from uh, going all the way back to my, my uh, freshman year in college where, you know, and I was out of sh- you know, pretty out of shape and, and I remember for the gym course, they had us run 12 minutes, just how far you could run. And I was just amazed. I was shocked that I, that I couldn't keep running for 12 minutes. And I was so, <laughs> that sort of was a wake-up call. And I thought, it, you know, became becoming much more serious about getting physically in shape. But it ended up being sort of, in my life, I always, that was always, no matter how busy I was, uh, I always made time, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know to, to go, go, go running or some other physical sport and uh so whether it's running hiking cross-country skiing kayaking you know so my so my my big hobby has always been some sort they're always solo activities they're not i've never been a team sport guy wow wow and am i correct that you said that right behind you that beautiful imagery is one of the hikes yeah so i you know right now i'm in winter park colorado and sort of right out my door i probably there are probably a hundred miles of trails that, that I can access just right outside my door, you know. It's beautiful, beautiful. Well, I actually Jack. can't do all hundred because it's too far, but but, <laughs> but you could. You have lots of choice. Trails. I'm saying that when I say hundred, I mean it's multiple trails all over. <laughs> Makes total sense. Jack, you're an amazing human being. You changed my life with your book, Market Wizards. I love all your books. Uh, I, I really loved Market Sense and Nonsense because I just feel like you opened up my eyes to things that I didn't even understand before. Um, but just thank you for everything you've brought forth and for your generosity coming on here today. Sure, I appreciate it, Kim. I see you yeah. again. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.